Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation, or needs. So when you think of a superstar, you're more likely to think about Drake in my case or Al Pacino in Mark's case. Mark has been trying to get me to watch Scent of a Woman for over a year and a half now. <laughs> you know, I was I was just going to say that. So that that is a great movie. I'm not some I'm not some giant fan of Al Pacino, but that's a great movie. And I watched your favorite movie, V for Vendetta, which is not a great movie. <laughs> and I also watched like a nine part mini series on John Benet Ramsey. Yeah, well. So that's called doing things for people. I know. I mean, I, I will admit Mark also gave me a DVD of The Wire once, but I just had no way of playing it. Yes, which you put <laughs> on our team chat and made it very clear that I was some sort of dinosaur because I was still using a DVD. Yeah. So um, let's get back to the episode. So here at Morningstar, though, um, we do have a team of manager research analysts who have a little bit of a different definition of a superstar. So last month, Morningstar crowned Hyperion as the Australian Fund Manager of the Year. So for this award, they were judged on risk-adjusted medium to long-term performance track records and performance in the 2020 calendar year. And that's kind of what it is in funds management. The people that manage your money and have a track record of doing it well become these cult figures, with some ending up household names if they've been doing it well and for long enough. So today we're going to see what their top picks are in their funds and how our equity analysts at Morningstar feel about their outlook. I think there are a few disclaimers before we get started, and one of them is pretty important to add context to these picks. So it's in very rare cases that fund managers or professional investors have absolute discretion to invest in their convictions. This is because funds have mandates, and these mandates must be followed to ensure that investors in the fund are fully aware of what they're getting themselves into when they invest, as well as being able to match a fund by its mandate to their goal and that they'd like to achieve in their portfolio. They also have benchmarks that they're trying to beat, and this gives a relative performance measure for the investment and can sometimes cause more problems for performance and solutions. Okay. And we've spoken about closet indexing in other episodes, just like Shawnee is a closet fan of Center of the Woman, <laughs> I, I believe. She will just never admit it. But closet indexing is when active funds start to look a lot like an index. So we have to remember that fund managers in most cases have their pay tied to their performance, which is a good thing. And fund managers can be seen as superstars by some, but at the end of the day, they're a person doing a job and their pay is tied to how they perform relative to an index. So underperformance is tied to outflows and funds. And because fund managers collect a management fee that is a percentage of the funds under management, they want to ensure that they're maintaining those fund levels. This means that managers might not want to take positions that deviate too far from the index or their peers just in case it causes a deviation that they're then punished for. For the fund managers that we're going to look at today, they might be a little different to this mold. They're known for their superior performance over long time periods, which you don't get by closet indexing. The second disclaimer is one I'm going to leave for Mark because I think this is one of your favorite rants. Um, so Mark, what are your thoughts on holdings disclosures of funds in Australia? 
Yeah, I, I like how you characterize these things as rants. <laughs> I characterize it as passionately advocating for investors. So one of the big problems in Australia is that Australian fund managers are not required to disclose their holdings. And there are all sorts of reasons for this that the industry gives, mainly that people will front run their trades. The problem is, of course, in every other developed country – Fund managers disclose their holdings, and there's no issue with it. And somebody we're going to talk about today is known for disclosure, but we'll get to that. So I guess that concludes my rant. Was that uh, was that okay, Shani? That was good. That was um, very succinct. Yeah. Wasn't expecting that. Okay, so <laughs> you were thinking this would go on for a half hour. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping. We we do have notes before we uh, when we do these things, and Shani took the notes today, and literally it says on the page, Mark goes on a little rant. <laughs> So it was a little rant. It was little. Yeah, I was following yeah. instructions. Okay, good. All right. So we're going to start with the newly crowned Hyperion and their Australian Growth Companies Fund, which our manager research team have awarded a silver medalist rating. This fund is managed by Mark Arnold, William Hartnell, Liam Polkenhorn, and Jason Ortham, and it's highly concentrated. It has between 15 to 30 stocks, with the top 10 stocks making up 74% of the fund. The Australian Growth Companies Fund has a mandate, and that's to achieve medium to long-term capital growth and income by investing primarily within the S&P ASX 200 index. And they do this by investing in companies that have high growth potential, low levels of gearing, predictable medium to long-term earnings streams, and own high-quality business franchises in most cases. Yeah, and interesting to note, at least interesting for Shani, who is a self-proclaimed fund groupie, but as of February 28th, this year, the fund had an 82.68% active rate, which is a measure of the equity holdings of a fund and its benchmark and how similar they are. So an active share score of zero indicates that the equity portion of the fund and its benchmark are the same exact holdings in the same exact proportions. An active share score of 100 indicates that the equity portion of the fund and its benchmark have no common holdings. So no fear of Hyperion being a closet indexer. So their top holding at the end of February 2021 was zero, um, and it made up almost 11% of the portfolio, so pretty high conviction. Also held in the fund is James Hardy Industries, Wise Tech Global, Afterpay, and Domino's. But let's focus on their top holding, which is zero. So Zero is known for its online accounting software, which I know about because my mom thinks I'm an accountant. They're currently sitting at about $120, and this is around mid-March. Hyperion say that they like Zero because it has a diversified and global revenue stream with large addressable markets. And there are a few attractive points to Zero's outlook that Morningstar can see as well. So we agree about diversified and global revenue streams. Zero has already achieved dominant positions in the New Zealand and Australian cloud accounting markets and, and is a leading competitor in the UK and US markets. A, a woman I went to college with called me a zero, but that is actually different spelling from the accounting software. But anyway, back to X zero. Yeah. I mean, you did marry a woman from college. Is there any correlation or it was someone else? Well, she calls me a zero every day, but that is, uh, that's beside the point. Okay. But, um, 
Unlike my marriage prospects after listening to this podcast, Zero is experiencing strong growth in both revenue and customers. And this is driven by the transition of desktop accounting software to the cloud. And we do at Morningstar see this trend continuing for the next decade. And lastly, Zero operates in the software sector, which is typically an industry with low capital intensity and strong cash generation. And we talked about this during our podcast episode on technology companies. So we do expect Zero to continue to generate strong returns on invested capital and free cash flow in the long term. So what does all of this mean? Do we think that Hyperion is right on this call to hold such a large position in Xero? Um, ultimately, no. So we do believe that Xero has a narrow moat, which means more likely than not, it will achieve normalized access returns for at least the next 10 years. However, we feel Xero is extremely overvalued, trading at a 161% premium. Although we agree that there are some attractive factors, we also think that subscriber churn rates in the international business are likely to be structurally higher than in Australia and New Zealand, and that Zero operates in a reasonably commoditized market that could experience an increase in price-based competition if product differentiation can't be maintained over the long term. Yeah, and that's exactly right, Shani, but it's important to note that's over the long term, as you said. So, I think that we need to make sure that when we're comparing these two views, it's like comparing apples and oranges. We'd be hard-pressed to find many equities where we share the same view, and that is because it's viewed through a different lens. So Hyperion's portfolio holdings are based on the suitability for its mandate, and Morningstar's ratings are based on different criteria and time horizons for stock's fair value. We also have different views of the market in general at the moment. So when we look at our Morningstar fair values at a country and regional level, we see Australia and the US as 5 to 9% overvalued. And Tim Samway, who's the executive chairman of Hyperion, said recently that they're finding valuations far more compelling than last year. And they think long-term thematics like e-commerce and digital payments were brought front and center because of the COVID pandemic, validating a lot of their theses they had in the years prior regarding valuations. So we can see that ultimately we're on different wavelengths regarding valuations and the situation of overall markets. Okay, so let's move on to our next superstar, and that's Catherine or Kathy Wood, um, founder, CIO, and CEO of ARC Investment Management, which has been the talk of the town lately. So Kathy's active ETF. Um, it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It returned an eye-watering 152% in 2020. So from its inception in October 2014 through to the end of February this year, it gained 36.01% on an annualized basis, 23% better than Morningstar's US market index, and just over 21% ahead of the mid-cap growth category average. Yeah, and it does not say in here, go on a little rant again. But one of the things that Kathy and ARC is known as is complete transparency. So they literally publish every single trade they make as they make it. So just another example of why Australia is in the dark ages around fund disclosures. But anyway, this innovation fund's investment objective is long-term growth of capital, and it seeks to achieve this by investing in most circumstances in domestic and foreign securities of companies that are relevant to ARC's investment theme of disruptive innovation. And what do ARC think is disruptive innovation? The introduction of a technologically enabled new product or service that potentially changes the way that the world works. And that's a pretty big call to make, so let's take a look at what Kathy thinks will change the way the world works. 
Ark believes that innovation is evolving at such a rapid pace that traditional equity and fixed income benchmarks are being populated increasingly by so-called value traps, stocks and bonds that are considered cheap for a reason. They believe that it's critical to investment success to be moving to the right side of change, embracing companies that are creating disruptive innovation. They believe there are five innovation platforms with subsets within each five that fit into the classification of disruptive innovation. So they're DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, and blockchain technology. Currently, the largest holding in Cathy's ARK Innovation ETF is Tesla, with techno king Elon Musk at the helm. Okay, well, we'll come back to that techno king and let Shawnee explain that. Um, but Tesla listed on the NASDAQ is currently trading at around $670 US and our fair value sits around $349 US. So it's trading at about an 88% premium. And we believe that Tesla has a narrow moat like zero. So Elon says that if Tesla executes well, it can sell 20 million vehicles a year in the late 2020s. And this means that it'll be twice the size of where Toyota and Volkswagen are today. Elon is proven right. Kathy is holding on to a winner. However, our analysts think that investing in Tesla carries tremendous uncertainty. The market has high expectations for the stock, so a slowdown in growth, any sort of execution problem, or a lack of capital could lead to a severe decline in the stock price. And there's also a problem with the techno king, and that is Elon's newly announced title as the head of Tesla. When CEO is too boring, you get to rename yourself, apparently. <laughs> if you could rename your title, Mark, what would it be? I, it's not appropriate okay. um, to, to talk about on here, but I am the butt of Shawnee's jokes and everyone's doormat. So if I can meld that into some sort of title, I will, uh, I will do that. But anyway, the techno king, when not coming up with new titles for himself, is erratic and his behavior does add uncertainty and there's a lot of key man risk as well so brilliant and erratic um little bit of a problem according to our analyst david winston we also think that mass electric vehicle adoption by consumers may be many more years away than tesla expects so if demand doesn't materialize the company's likely to struggle to recoup the losses of its gigafactories so has kathy got it wrong well, I think, again, it's a case of time horizon. So our analyst valuations are forecasting three plus years into the future. Although the investment objective of the fund is long-term capital growth, when we look at last year, Cathy's ARC Innovation Fund had a turnover rate of 80%. And that means that over the course of the year, she sells 80% of the assets that she holds and is indicative that she's not a buy and hold kind of investor. This is definitely a different perspective to our analysts who think that Tesla does have the potential to change the world and for the stock to appreciate, but it's marred by uncertainty and their dominance is reliant on mass EV adoption, which is long into the future. So there's definitely room for this stock to appreciate drastically and skyrocket like it has in the recent past, but the underlying business is unlikely to meet those valuations. And we talked earlier about how much Kathy and ARC disclose and that's a great thing. There's a lot of transparency, but critics do say that they are basically pumping up their own positions because she has a army of social media fans that just follow and do whatever she says, basically whatever ARC does. So if we combine that with the high turnover rate, 
we could see what's actually happening here. But anyway, let's talk a little more about this turnover rate. So for 2020, the turnover rate was 80%. And of course, the performance was eye-watering at over 150%. So naturally, one could assume that Kathy is locking in profits by selling assets that have rallied and then purchasing new assets to replace them. It would make sense in what we could put lightly as a year of anomalies. It would be a pretty safe assumption to make until you dive into their financial reports and find that in 2019, before the volatility and uncertainty, the turnover rate was 80% and 89% in 2017, 110% in 2016, and 108% from the inception of the fund in October 2014 to August 2015. For comparison, Hamish Douglas's global equity funds have a portfolio turnover rate of 13.7% since inception, and those portfolios consist of highly concentrated funds with under 40 stocks. Yeah, and this is contrasted with the premise of the fund to invest in disruptive innovation that changes the way the world works. When we look at the companies that fit the bill, according to CAF's top 10 holdings, they include Square, Spotify, Zillow, Proto Labs. All companies that have the potential to disrupt their industry or have caused disruption, but not overnight or even the space of the year. Whether it fits the investment objective or not, Kathy seems to have found a knack for finding opportunities that provide handsome returns for ARK's investors. And we can't wrap up an episode without talking about Hamish. Shani once volunteered to mic up all of the speakers <laughs> at our investment conference, except for, of course, me, who yeah. was... You know, you're on your own. Yeah, who's emceeing <laughs> it? Um, just so she could meet him. And if that's not a superstar, I don't know what is. I think one of my favorite facts about Hamish is he once took an interview with the AFR at the Maccas in the Strand Arcade, and he ate an Angus burger during it. So that's a man I'd trust with my money. Okay, well, I, it, it seems like Shawnee is not the only one. So Magellan, which is Hamish's um, investment manager, fund manager, their uh, number one fund, Magellan Global Fund, has a Morningstar gold medalist rating, our highest rating. And the company has over $100 billion in funds under management. 7% of that was invested in Microsoft at the start of the year, which is their top holding. And they've also got pretty convincing holdings in Alphabet, and that's Google's parent company, Tencent, Facebook, and Starbucks. And this is in a fund where the investment objective is to achieve attractive, risk-adjusted returns over the medium to long term while minimizing the risk of permanent capital loss. It invests in 20 to 40 global stocks at any one time and measures itself against the Miski World Net Total Return Index. Yeah, and let's let's take a step back and look at where Hamish sees the market at the moment. So Magellan's fund has underperformed the broader market for the past four months, which, as anyone should know listening to this, is not a time period that is long term and should cause any investors to do anything. But the main reason this has happened is that they have increased their cash holdings in the fund close to 50%. And that's a pretty astonishing figure for high conviction equities funds. And Hamish addresses this position by pointing to the investment objectives, minimizing the risk of permanent capital loss. He believes the markets are extremely overvalued, and he's okay with lagging behind the market during what he calls a one in 50 year rally. Hamish has said that he's not 
one to bet on oil strikes or vaccine trials, and he's happy to just protect capital until he sees opportunity in the market. All right, so let's take a look at what he sees in Microsoft. So firstly, he thinks that Microsoft is strengthening its hold on the business world and is doing this by adapting to a new technology, and that includes cloud and business software. So he looks at the 11% annual revenue growth in recent years across Microsoft's productivity and intelligent cloud segments, even as PC sales shrank by 0.9% annually in the same period. And this is showing that Microsoft is shifting away from its PC-centric beginnings, and this profitable shift towards new business will serve well for future earnings. Magellan also cites that there have been noticeable takeovers to acquire networks and intellectual capital, strengthening their foothold and diversifying their product mix. So since 2016, Microsoft have acquired companies like LinkedIn, where Shawnee looks for new jobs, (laughs) GitHub, an online code sharing platform used by more than 2 million businesses and developers, and Mojang, the publisher of the Minecraft video game, which Shawnee plays during work to avoid doing any. Uh, So Hamish is confident these acquisitions and embracing of new technologies will prove to be a profitable endeavor for both Microsoft and for investors in Magellan's fund. So what does Morningstar think? As it stands, we're pretty in line with Hamish. Microsoft's currently trading at $235 at the time we're recording this, and we think its fair value sits at $263. So it's sitting at a four-star rating. We believe that Microsoft has a wide moat, and this means we have a very high confidence that excess returns will remain for 10 years, with excess returns more likely than not to remain for at least 20 years. Hamish is a big fan of Satya Nadella, who took over as CEO of Microsoft in 2014, and we think that's pretty justified. He's reinvented Microsoft into a cloud leader, which is extremely important for Microsoft's future growth, as public cloud is widely considered to be the future of enterprise computing. Microsoft also has a monopoly-like position in areas like Microsoft Office and OS, and those serve as cash cows that help to drive Azure's growth. And we do believe there are some uncertainties, like Microsoft lacking a meaningful mobile presence and momentum slowing in the shift to subscription products. But we believe the value of the underlying business tends to be underestimated by the market when it comes to the stock price. I think, though, out of the fund managers that we've reviewed today, our perspective on investing here at Morningstar is matched more to Hamish than it is to Hyperion and Arc. As we mentioned before, the turnover rate is low for the fund, indicative of a longer holding period. Period for these stocks, an implication that Hamish is focused on the long-term future value of Microsoft. Ultimately, our views on these businesses can differ based on a number of factors, including the way that shares are valued by analysts. Ultimately, a qualitative endeavor, and is another episode completely. We as investors have to remember that on the other side of every buy or sell trade we make, there's another investor seeing value or feeling the value has diminished in the business, the exact opposite view that we hold. Our views may differ from ARK and Hyperion in these instances. They have very strong feelings about Zero and Tesla, which they've showed through investing heavily in these stocks. Ultimately, it may serve the purposes of the investors in their fund, but we believe in the long term, the prices of these stocks do not reflect the value of the underlying business and its future earnings. And the last recommendation I have for everyone today, and I 100% stand by this, if you watch V for Vendetta, you should drink heavily (laughs) during it. Worst case scenario, you don't remember what happened in the movie. And best case scenario, it's a little more enjoyable. So that's our episode for today. If you have any feedback, please send it through to the email address, which is my address in the episode notes. We'd also love a rating and comment if you have the time. And also share this with any friends you have. So thank you very much for joining us today. 
Any final words of wisdom, Shani? Yeah, that's it, mate. All right, great. Thank you. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation, or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.